Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Man, Part 3. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We are in our new section of the Defenders class, studying the doctrine of man, and we've been looking at the notion of man as created in the image of God. And we looked last time at a number of verses, uh, primarily in Genesis, that indicate that man is made in God's image and likeness. Now, you'll notice that there's no indication in the biblical text that this image or likeness is lost through the fall of man into sin. In fact, in the command in Genesis 9 and verse 6, where the rationale for capital punishment is given, it says that man is created in the image of God, even in his fallen state. So even fallen man retains the divine image in which he was created. So there isn't any indication in the biblical text that this image or likeness to God is something that is lost through the human fall into sin. Let's talk briefly about Christ as the image of God. There's another use of the word image with respect to God's image. That is to say, Christ is the image of God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. Now, this is quite a different use of the expression image of God. Here, Christ is said to be the visible representation of the invisible God in a special sense then that is not true of Adam and Eve, Christ is God's image. Finally, uh, let's say a word about man in Christ as the image of God. Um, Thirdly, man in Christ is said to be conformed to Christ's image. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, icon, of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So here, uh, we as Christians are said to be uh, destined toward conformity with Christ's image. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness, icon, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here, we are said to be sanctified as we are brought into the image of Christ the Lord. So there is a kind of image of Christ toward which believers are destined and progressing. Such are the biblical data with respect to the image of God. 
Man is created in God's image. Christ is God's image. And man in Christ is brought into conformity with the image of Christ. Any comments on that biblical data before we look at attempts to systematize it? Yes, uh, there was. Oh, Steve. Yes, I didn't see the hand. Is that a difference? Uh, let's get it on the mic here, Steve. Okay, now that's a different word for image or the same word? Um, the same word in these last passages, icon, is the same one that is used um, for um, image. Um, of course, in, in Hebrew, as I explained, it's, it's different in the Old Testament, um, but it, it is this word icon, from which we get our word icon. I don't know, Steve, I haven't looked at the Septuagint for uh, Genesis 1, uh, 26, 27. I, I, I think so, but I shouldn't commit myself. All right, having looked at the biblical data then on the image of God, we now want to look at various attempts to systematize this data. Let's talk first about the Roman Catholic view. The traditional Roman Catholic view differentiates between the image and the likeness of God. Now, you'll remember that Genesis says that man was created in God's image according to his likeness. For Roman Catholics, these are two different things in man. Um, in man's original state of righteousness, uh, in which man was created, man had the likeness of God. So the likeness of God consists in man's original righteousness that he had prior to the fall. Um, but man in that original state was also in God's image as well. This is usually understood in terms of man's having a rational soul. But then comes the fall. And with the fall, that original righteousness is lost. Therefore, man in his fallen condition no longer stands in the likeness of God. The image of God, however, though impaired and disrupted by the fall, still exists even in the fallen state, and so is not entirely lost. Finally, in the state of grace, insofar as we are in Christ, the likeness of God is restored because we now have Christ's righteousness, and the image of God is also healed and restored from the disruption that it experienced. Now, we can illustrate um, this difference by um, drawing two lines concerning the image and likeness of God. In the state of original righteousness, man exists uh, in God's image. Then with the fall, this image is distorted and impaired. But then, as one is in Christ, in a state of grace, the image is healed and restored. The likeness of God, which is man's original righteousness, is, however, just lost in the fall. Uh, man no longer has it. But then, insofar as one is in Christ, 
the original righteousness that uh, Adam and Eve had is restored. So, on the traditional Roman Catholic view, there's a distinction drawn between the image and the likeness of God in man. The image is distorted by the fall into sin and then repaired in the state of grace. But the likeness of man to God, that original righteousness that he possessed, is lost in the fallen state and then uh, restored in Christ. Now by contrast to the traditional Roman Catholic view, the Protestant Reformation theologians did not distinguish between the image of God and the likeness of God. They held that the image of God just is the likeness of God. These are not two different aspects of man. So in that original state of righteousness, man was in the image or likeness of God. It means the same thing. The key difference between the Protestant reformers and the Catholic view emerges with respect to the question whether fallen man is still in the image of God. The reformers view implied that fallen man is no longer in God's image. They identified the image of God with the likeness of God, which was man's original righteousness. And since that original righteousness was lost, so was the image of God. Nevertheless, they did try to affirm some sense in which fallen, sinful human beings are still in God's image. By differentiating between a general image and a special image of God. They said that only the special image of God is lost and that in a sort of general sense even fallen man would still be in God's image. Luther, for example, said that man almost lost the image of God in the fall. Calvin says that a relic of the image of God remains in this fallen condition. He says, um, and I quote, we can trace some remains of the divine image distinguishing the whole human race from other creatures, end quote. The question, I think, here is whether the reformers are consistent in seeing the image of God as lost because of the identity of that image with the likeness of God man's original righteousness, and yet they're still wanting to preserve um, some vestige of God's image in man. Now, you notice that the Reformers and the Catholic theologians are united in seeing God's image as rooted in ontology or in man's constitution. Sometimes this is called a substantial view of the imago dei. Man is structurally different than other animals. Only he has or is a rational soul. God is the supremely rational being. He is the logos of John 
chapter 1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Similarly, our being in God's image means that we, too, are rational creatures. This view is in line with Aristotle's view of the nature of humanity, uh, which is that human nature is to be a rational animal. Our physical bodies are shared with the animals. We have bodies that are very similar to uh, the great apes and uh, other primates, but our soul or our mind makes us godlike. It is our reason that distinguishes us from mere animals. So on both the Catholic view and the Reformation view, the image of God is something that is um, constitutional in humanity. It is um, a substantial aspect of human being. Now others, as we've seen, have suggested differently that the image of God is simply the original righteousness in which Adam and Eve were created. They were created innocent and unfallen, um, and it was that original righteousness that they had that made them in God's image. So on that view, the image of God would be lost in the fall if it is identical simply with this original righteousness. Some modern theologians, on the other hand, have interpreted the image of God relationally. We stand in I-thou relationships, or to use contemporary parlance, I-you relationships, uh, first-person relationships with one another, both with uh, other persons, other human beings, and also with God. We stand in an I-thou relationship with God as well as with other human persons. So, man is in God's image, not in being structurally different from the beasts, but by his standing in personal relationships. Again, it has been suggested that the image of God consists in our relative freedom. We have freedom of the will. We're not like animals which are guided by instinct. Rather, we have the ability to make morally significant choices, and it is our freedom that constitutes the image of God in us. Another possible interpretation would be our answerability to God. This would again seem to be a relational interpretation where it is our responsibility and relationship to God that constitutes being in God's image. We have moral duties to fulfill and we are answerable and accountable to God. So the image of God would consist in our answerability to God. Yet a different view of the image of God in man is the so-called functional interpretation. Rather than God's image being um, due to an ontological component in man's being, or uh, man's standing in relationships, the image of God is thought of functionally. 
it's a way in which humanity functions or exists. So, for example, some have suggested that the image of God consists in man's having lordship over the earth and its creatures. To be in God's image means to have the God-given duty and role of governing the earth and its creatures. We are functioning on the earth as God's royal representatives. And this is a functional understanding of God's image then, rather than an ontological one. So as you can see, there are quite a wide variety of interpretations of what it means to say that man is created in the image of God and according to his likeness. So before we look at some evaluation of these alternatives, let me ask if there's any discussion of any of these different interpretations. Bobby. Yeah, I was just following up on the uh, question earlier about the Septuagint's use of the word yes. image. It's, it's icona okay. in uh, one, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Good. Okay, word. so icona. icon. Good. Thank you. Cash? Okay, if this is the wrong place to talk about this, just tell me. Um, and we might have talked about this before, but I don't remember. And I've heard other people teach on image of God and man as being some sort of a trinity of man and... There are loads and loads of verses about where heart and spirit and soul are all mentioned. Mm. And it seems to me like those are kind of literary devices of expounding on the same thing, like it's being restated. So like when Jesus says to the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your mind and soul and heart, I don't know that those are different things, but then you get to the verse in Hebrews 4, where it talks about the power of, of the word to be able to separate soul from spirit. Yes. And so I wonder, uh, you know, is soul and spirit a different thing? Are we somehow, is that part of our image of God? Uh, and I've heard, I even heard people go so far as to explain that we're a, the, this trinity of man is like the, the yes. body is more like Jesus and the soul is more like uh, the the. Holy Spirit and the and Spirit is more like as God the Father and that that seems yeah. like that's really reaching to me. I think so as well. I think the question would be whether or not two discussions are being run together here mm-hmm. that need to be kept distinct. It seems to me that what you're talking about are whether or not there are reflections or vestiges or traces of the Trinity in humanity. So this would be a Trinitarian discussion whether or not Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit find some sort of analogy or reflection in humans. But I don't see that that is connected with this question of man created in God's image. Now I suppose somebody could could push it that way, but I think he would have a hard time justifying that biblically. Let's simply point out that on that view that would be a substantial view. There it would be an attempt to understand the image of God in terms of ontology, the the structure of human being. So it would fit in with the view that I described as a substantial or ontological uh, view of the image of God. But instead of 
uh, rooting it perhaps in the rational soul, it might appeal to this tripartite um, division. Do I? I think that there's a functional difference in that the soul describes the mind's workings uh, normally in this world, but insofar as the mind relates to God in its spiritual function, it could be called spirit. So I would see it not as an ontological composition in man, that man is made of soul and spirit, but I would see this more as a functional differentiation. The soul, insofar as it relates to God, can be referred to as spirit. I think we're going to talk about that later in the class when we come to these different constituents in, in human being. Yes, um, yes, Steve? Okay, my question is about the image, how it's damaged in the fall and then how both the Catholic and the Protestant agree that it gets restored to its original form. And so, is there, uh, do they discuss anything other than the fact that the power of sin revives and keeps us alienated, and once we're born again in Christ, we can live his desire? So it's only the lordship that's different in the image, right? Or is there something else they allude to being damaged by the fall? This is a great question, Steve, and I... I um wonder exactly what is meant by saying the image of God is damaged or uh, hurt. And I could imagine that one might say that, for example, the different faculties would be disrupted, that the will would no longer naturally incline toward God but would be bent in upon itself and, and will other things in God. Perhaps reason is twisted and distorted by the fall so that uh, fallen man doesn't reason properly. So one could imagine that these different faculties would still be possessed by fallen man, but that they wouldn't be functioning properly. Like we'd be using them to hide because of the guilt. Yes, yeah, right. You know, the scripture talks a lot about the darkened intellect, and as a result, um, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1. Yes. What is the orthodox traditional view of the Imago Dei? I'm sorry, repeat that? What is the Eastern Orthodox view on this? Ah, hmm. Well, I didn't have that as part of my notes, so I would have to look at that. Um, I would suspect that it would be very similar to the Roman Catholic view that would distinguish original righteousness from the rational soul that makes us different from the beasts. That was very, very <coughs> widespread view among the early church fathers. Yes, K1. Yes, Dr. Craig. Of all the lists that you provided, I kind of attempt to put them together and want to run it through you and see if uh, you agree with this all right. integration. Um, first, God create man for there is a design and there's a purpose. So ontological is the design, and the function is his purpose. And his purpose is for man to rule his creation according to his will. And so ontologically, he designed us with our soul, which comprises of our emotion, our intellect, and our will. And so... The fallen state is that our 
conscience, which is uh, actually um, the conscience before fall is in agreement with God. And the devotion is the I-thou relationship dominates. But after the fall, it's I-you because Satan come in and basically uh, deceive us and broken that I-thou relationship. And so our conscience is distorted to a point that we lost the purpose of God's design. And, and so we try to um, live out the image without that um, without God's will, without his uh, purpose, and basically lost. All right, I think you're quite right, Taiwan, in, in seeing that these are not mutually exclusive alternatives, but can be integrated into a sort of synoptic view. And I like very much the way you put it. I wouldn't say that the purpose was lost because it does remain God's purpose. He has placed us here for the purpose of serving as his royal uh, representatives on this planet. But we have failed to discharge that purpose. And that's what you meant. Yes. Um, And similarly, I think you'd want to say that there's something about the design that makes man capable of functioning in this way. And I'll say something more about that as well. But apart from those comments, I think you expressed it very nicely. Uh, Yes. So um, I I was curious about uh, if, I I know it's probably not prominent uh, of a belief, but um, my initial reaction to anything looking like the image of something, I would think that it almost like physically looks like it. Yeah. And therefore, is there any view out there that's like God has a corporeal face and looks like a human being. and There and are uh, theologians who, or exegetes, who would say this just means that human beings are physically like God, that God looks like a man in the sky. Um, the sort of popular misconception of God, and they would say that was the sort of crude understanding that, some people had at that time, and so the image of God it should just be straightforwardly interpreted in that way, that God looks like us. Um, the difficulty with that, I think, is that whatever the background or oral traditions there might be behind Genesis 1, by the time it gets to Genesis 1 and the author of the Pentateuch, he clearly doesn't think of God that way because he says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and God is portrayed as a transcendent being beyond the physical world who creates the entire universe. So for the final author I don't think he could have understood the image of God in that physicalistic anthropomorphic way because the concept of God in Genesis 1 is so transcendent. We have time, I think, for one more comment. I have the microphone. <laughs> okay, Bruce, go ahead. Uh, try to synthesize, as a trichotomist, I would synthesize what Mike and, and Steve said, that with the fall, you know, we have, we have the image of God, but that 
after the fall, the, the, the influence of the body on the soul is much more dominant and minimizes the effect of the spirit on the soul. And so when you're a believer, that's restored. You can push back. The spirit can push back through the, through the soul yeah. and, and then to the body rather than the other way around. <laughs> the, other, the other direction is more dominant after the fall, and that's the, the loss of the image. So it's, yes. it's what's affects our volition, cognition, and emotion. So which what, is, what, in, in a case like this, what is the image? It seems to me that, uh, as I said to Cash, that we're conflating two different mm-hmm. discussions here. What is the image well, of I, God? I think the image is a three-part being, uh, as you know, God is Trinitarian. I think that's okay. what we are. Okay. All right, good. Yeah. Well, um, we're out of time, so... Uh, We'll close now, and then uh, we'll turn to an evaluation of these different interpretations the next time we meet. Father, as we begin our new year, we do so with a sense of expectancy and gladness that you've promised to be with us and to accompany us in our journey. And so as we um, go out into this work week, we pray that you would make us mindful of you, that we would walk in your will, and that we would seek to please you in all that we do and say, through Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.